0: The 103rd Psalm. We're going to read the psalm in its entirety, but we will just uh, cover the first 14 verses tonight. The 103rd Psalm. Bless the Lord, O my soul, Song of David. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it is gone and his place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you, his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Father, we're so grateful for your word, and we thank you that you've loved us. We thank you that you have showered us with so many blessings, so many benefits in Christ. May we be reminded of those tonight and find encouragement. And should you allow us to enter into the warfare of the week, in the various places that you have us, uh, that this would be strength. Strength as we go into this place to share the gospel by our word, by our conduct, and for your honor. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. You may be seated. Well, as you were uh, aware of this morning, we looked at the doctrine of justification by faith with Abraham and David uh, being the Old Testament examples of this, uh, this declared truth by God. And so what I want to do tonight is I wanted to look at Psalm 103. It's a very warm psalm. It's a devotional psalm. Matthew Henry said that this psalm uh, calls more for devotion than exposition. Uh, not that he was against exposition, but it certainly uh, does warm the heart, this psalm. It's one of those psalms that you run to uh, when you're down. It's one of those psalms that just lift you up uh, when you're in the pit, so to speak. And so we want to look at the, uh, the psalm tonight, the first 14 verses, um, and, and see within the psalm what God has done for us by way of our position in Christ. We made that uh, clear this morning, that God has declared us righteous, justified by faith alone in Christ alone. And I kind of wanted to peel that back, is to go deeper, and to see, well, what has he exactly done in this great work? And that will be the first part, uh, and you'll see it on your outline. And then I want us to look and see how he treats us. How does God treat us in light of our position in Christ? And it's easy to forget that. As you would notice uh, in verse 2, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Uh, one thing that is very clear uh, from our fallen condition is that we are prone to forget. And we are prone to forget God's blessings. We are prone to forget all of His benefits. Spiritual amnesia is something that we all suffer from at times. Uh, we get wrapped up in just the affairs of life. We get we get uh, in our own little worlds of trials and tribulations, and overwhelmed at times. And so, verse two is very real. We do forget all His benefits. So what I want to do is just encourage you tonight in, in, in regards to the things that God has done to us or done for us in the doctrine of justification by faith. And then to see how he treats us since we are sta- standing righteous before him always, never, never. Never changing. And so, really, what we're looking at is our union in Christ. Our union in Christ. Next uh, Sunday, we start our combined ABF. We come together uh, at the nine o'clock hour for the summer, all the way through till the first week in September, and we're going to observe uh, a Legionnaire teaching series by Sinclair Ferguson on union in Christ. It's extremely well done, which their teaching series are, but Sinclair Ferguson, as you have all are familiar with him, he's a great teacher, he's a great preacher, and his teaching on the union with Christ is so liberating and so encouraging, so we're going to do that, and I'm just kind of just serving that up tonight. By looking at our union in Christ, what God has done for us in the doctrine of justification by faith, and then how does he treat us as a result of our inseparable union in Christ. Now one thing that is a good study is to look at the metaphors in the New Testament that describe our union in Christ. Our union in Christ. Uh, the first one was found in John 15, don't turn to these, but I just want to give this by way of studying this, these for your own encouragement, is that our union in Christ, this doctrine of justification by faith, whereas God declares us in an inseparable union in His Son because of His righteousness imputed to us, the first metaphor that we see is that of the vine and the branches in John chapter 15. It is so rich in meaning as you you study that and you see the inseparable union of Christ, the source of life and the source of power, and us as branches in John 15. Uh, We also have the Apostle Paul affirming this metaphor of the the vine and the branches in Romans chapter 6, where he will say that we have been planted with Christ in a death like his. We shall also be planted in a resurrection like his. So the doctrine of justification isn't just something that we believe. It is very practical because it allows us to live out our union in Christ, the union of His death and His resurrection. So the vine and the branches is the first metaphor. The second metaphor uh, that, that illustrates for us our union in Christ is the head and the body. The head and the body, Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. So then we find that not only are we thrilled by the power source of Christ for the Christian life in the vine and branches, but we get our direction as him being the head and us the body. And with the head is the protection of the body. And then finally, we have the third metaphor of our union in Christ, and that is the husband and the wife. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And there we see the spiritual intimacy that we have based on our union in Christ, justified, uh, declared justified by God by his righteousness. So what we want to look at then tonight, beginning in verses 1 through 5, what the Lord has done for us. What has He done for us by virtue of declaring us righteous, declaring us justified? Well, the first thing that we find in verses 1 through 3 is that He has met our greatest need. He has met our greatest need. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits." Isn't it very interesting that the very first benefit that, the, that the, the psalmist, David, would write of for the believer is that of forgiveness, that of forgiveness, forgiveness of all your iniquity. The word iniquity means our perverseness. It means our nature. And so when you look at uh, your, greatest, uh, your greatest problem in life, our greatest problem in life is that we stand guilty before God. We stand guilty with a guilt that we can't shed. And so what do we find the Lord has done for us in justification by faith? He has taken our greatest problem, guilt, and he has solved it, which turns out to be our greatest need. And that is forgiveness. Forgiveness. Forgiveness is at the top of the list. And you will find in the Gospels, when Jesus does a healing, it's interesting that he would address their greatest need of someone in the spiritual realm before he addresses the physical. In Luke chapter 5 verse 17, in one of these days as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and they let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. Those were some really good friends. Is that they would go to all a great length to get their friend into the presence of the healer, of the great physician. And this was all about getting the man to walk. And notice what Jesus does first. And so they lower him down, and he's in the presence of Jesus, and the crowd is everywhere. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. He didn't tell him, man, get out of your bed and walk. He said, your sins are forgiven you. And later on in the account, he'll walk. He'll walk. But the point I want us to understand is that God has come to us in the doctrine of justification. He has come to us. And what he has done is he has met our greatest need. And our greatest need is forgiveness. Is forgiveness. Yes, Jesus met the man's primary need first. He did follow up with the the physical need. And here's the great thing that should thrill your soul. God is not reluctant to forgive us. God is not reluctant to forgive us. God delights in forgiving sinners. I mean, if angels rejoice over sinners repentant, how much more the crucified and risen Lord as we see um, Jesus and what he went through so that we could be forgiven. Never question and never doubt God uh, is in his benevolent heart to, uh, to forgive us. He delights in forgiving us. There was a story told about... Um, Uh, Elizabeth I, England's most famous queen. She had a special favorite among among her nobles. It was the Earl of Essex. One day Elizabeth gave him a ring as an indicator of her affection and promised the Earl that if he ever was accused of a crime, all he had to do was send that ring to her and she would at once grant him an audience that he would plead his pardon. The day come when he needed that ring. He was accused of conspiracy and high treason. Yet he was executed. For the, king, for the ring Elizabeth had given him was never presented to him or to her. Well, the years went by, and the Countess of Nottingham, a relative who was no friend of the Earl, was laid, laying, dying on her deathbed. She sent a message to the Queen asking her to come that she needed to make a confession to her. So she could die in peace. The queen arrived at the deathbed of the countess. And the countess produced the ring. The very ring the queen had once given to Essex. Her favorite. It seems that Essex had given the ring to the countess. With the urgent request to take it immediately to the queen. But she failed to do so. And as a result it led to his execution. And in her last moments the countess sought Elizabeth's forgiveness. And at the sign of the ring, the queen was livid with rage. And she looked at the countess and said, God may forgive you, but I will never forgive you for what you've done. That's not our God. Our God is not reluctant to forgive. I don't care how far we've gone down the prodigal trail. I don't care how far we've gone, even as believers. Is that he restores the repentant. And he does so out of delight. And so we find then in Psalm 103, the very first blessing of what God has done for us as he declares us righteous is that he meets our greatest need, forgiveness. Now let's go back and look at verse three. Here's the second great blessing that the Lord does for us. He cures our diseases. And he cures our greatest diseases. Now do not read this and think it's physical. It's not. It's not. God does not heal all physical diseases. We know that. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases. These are spiritual diseases. John Phillips has rightly said, quote, The soul does indeed have its diseases, just like the body. Guilt, fear, doubt, depression, anger, lust, hate, jealousy spite greed those are some of them those are the diseases of the soul it can be very cruel and very uh and very unloving to try to link this to physical healing because what happens if god chooses not to heal physically what if he chooses not to remove that ailment from you so then what we find is that he cures not only, he, he, I should say he meets our greatest need, forgiveness, but he cures our greatest disease. And your greatest disease isn't the physical ailment. As you, as you all know, I mean, I'm, I'm recovering from a stroke, and my right side is very painful. I am still suffering significantly from nerve, nerve pain. You know, I've asked the Lord to heal me, and I know other people have asked as well. I've also, I've also asked him, say, Lord, if you won't heal, can you lessen the pain? And so, not to draw attention to myself, but what if he leaves that in my life? Then, then that will be a reminder to me of his love to me. Because I could very well be not able to talk to you. I could very well not be able to swallow as a result of what happened. It's remarkable, my recovery. And yet, he's chosen not to take all of it away. Now, maybe he will, maybe he won't. But the point we get at here is God, God is interested in, in, in meeting and doing what he said he would do, and that's to heal our greatest diseases. All of us are getting old, and all of us feel the, the passing of time. All of us feel the ailments of the body. Um, that's not going to go away. The reality of it is that he will cure our greatest diseases, and that is of the soul. And how does he do this? The psalmist declares that he heals all your diseases. Again, look at all your diseases. You can't, you can't say it's physical uh, because, as I mentioned, uh, you could cause a lamb to stumble if you, if you say it's all physical. But how does God do this? How does God cure our diseases, our spiritual diseases? He does it by his word. Psalm 107, verse 20, he sent out his word and healed them. And in particular, do you know what the healing bomb is for every single spiritual disease? It is the gospel. It is the gospel. And Jesus comes onto the scene and he says that I've been anointed to proclaim good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. This was about spiritual freedom about spiritual, uh, spiritual healing of the ailments of the soul. So when you, when you go through life and you experience all the, you know, the frailties of the physical, remember this, that God in His great benevolence and His great love, He has cured your greatest disease, and that is your sin. He has healed your spiritual diseases, and someday we will be delivered from all diseases. And Lord willing, uh, that day comes soon. Now, look at verse, uh, verse 4, and we find the fourth, or I should say, the third gracious work of the Lord that He's done for us. He saves us from sin's temporal and eternal consequences. He saves us from t- sin's temporal and eternal consequences. In verse 4, He says, Who redeems you, delivers you from the pit. Now, the pit is often associated with grave and death. The grave and death. And in Hebrews chapter 2, We have these words. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. You've talked to people, I'm sure, that have been afraid to die. And if you're outside of Christ, you have every right to be afraid to die. And yet, even as Christians, we're not... Totally removed from that. I believe God will give dying grace when you need dying grace. I said, but we're not we're not immune to that fear of death because uh, we've never done this before. I mean, we don't we don't we never done it before, so it's all new. We don't know. But the reality of it is, through the gospel, He has saved us from the sins temporal death, which is temporal consequences, which is physical death. But then He's He saved us from the eternal consequences, which is eternal death. Or the second death. I think what is so, in, so encouraging is the language that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 about death being conquered. It's military language. It's military language of conquest. I've used these often uh, in funerals for the believer because this is exactly what it is. First Corinthians chapter 15 verse 54 where the when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality then shall come to pass the saying that is written death is swallowed up in victory o oh, death where is your victory o oh, death where is your sting The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, O death, where is your sting? O death, where is your victory? And it reminds you of the hymn that we sing. Up from the grave he arose. It's the conquest of death, the last enemy that the Bible would say. And I would encourage you in your evangelistic uh, efforts as you talk to people, talk about death. We do that often on a basketball court. Is it guys are sitting all out there, and there's all different ages, and and we all come from different backgrounds. And I've often said this to them. What are you going to do about death? What's your answer for death? And the world has no answer for death. I've actually had someone say, I don't want to talk about it. And I'm thinking, well, that doesn't make it go away. Is the reality of it is death is the equalizer. Death is the last enemy for all of us. And yet what do we have in justification by faith? Because Christ partook of death for us, we now partake of the resurrection with him. That's an imputation too and allows us to look at death and say like, Paul, where is your sting? It's been removed. And so you're going to have confidence at that time. You're going to have t- confidence when God puts uh, you on that pathway of death the enemy has been conquered and so the psalmist would say that he has redeemed us our life from the pit you see the riches what god has given to us in justification by faith he's only met our greatest need which is forgiveness he's not only cured our greatest diseases and that is of the soul but he saves us from sins temporal and eternal consequences is that partakers of the first resurrection the second death has no power is that we will be forever, forever where death is banished. Now let's take a look also at, um, in verse 5, actually the end of verse 4 and verse 5, here's the fourth blessing that God has bestowed upon us, what He has done. He exalts over us with love and mercy. If anything, I want you to be so encouraged by this point, is that God delights in us. I know that's hard to imagine sometimes, because we look in the mirror, we look into our own hearts, we say, how in the world could he delight in me? In the scale of the relationship, there's no question that God got the short end of it. He got us, and we got him. But nevertheless, I want you to think about what the psalmist says. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit. Now note this, who crowns you. He crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Who is a God like this God that would take sinners and take enemies and take rebels and change them and justify them at the expense of his son? And then he would say, I'm going to crown them. I'm going to exalt them. I'm going to delight in them. Charles Spurgeon said this, and Spurgeon is always good. Spurgeon said, quote, our Lord does nothing by halves. He will not stay his hand till he has gone to the uttermost with his people. Cleansing, healing, redemption are not enough. He must need make them kings and crown them. And the crown must be far more precious than if it were made of corruptible things such as silver and gold. It is studded with gems of grace and lined with the velvet of loving kindness. It is decked with the jewels of mercy, but made soft for the head to wear by a lining of tenderness, end quote. That's our God. Is that he is delighted to declare us righteous, and he says, I am going to exalt over you with love and mercy. You've likely memorized Zephaniah 3.17. Zephaniah 3.17 is one of those shouting ground verses. This is what the prophet would say, the Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. If you're a believer tonight, I don't care what you've done, I don't care the struggles you're having, it says that he rejoices over you with gladness. He goes on, he will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. Octavius Wenslow. He was one of the... um, the great devotional writers of the 19th century. And Winslow was commenting on Zephaniah 3.17. He says this of the Lord. He will be silent because of his love. Divine wrath is silent because love has hushed it. Divine justice is silent because love has satisfied it. Sin is silent because love has vanquished him. God's love has silenced every voice but its own, and have we no accusers? Oh yes, many, many. And just conscious accuses, Satan accuses, sin accuses, and the world accuses, but Jesus accuses not. He is silent because of his love. He will crown us. He will crown us with steadfast love and mercy. Why? Because of the doctrine of justification by faith is that Christ bore our sins and we have been imputed with a righteousness that allows God to look at us and allow God to meet our greatest need, forgiveness. Allow God to cure our greatest diseases, the spiritual. Allow God to save us from the eternal and temporal consequences of death and allows him to exalt over us with love and mercy. Remember this, beloved. God takes great delight in you. He doesn't take great delight in you because you're good, because you're not. He takes great delight in you because you are in His Son, Jesus Christ. That's why He takes delight in us. Now look at verse 5, and we see the fifth thing that God, that God has done for us because we're justified. He brings us contentment. He brings us contentment. Our world is, is full of discontent. And sadly, there are a lot of Christians who are discontent. They're discontent with their circumstances. They're discontent with what they have or what they don't have. They're discontent in their relationships and on and on and on. And so what we read, though, in verse 5, the psalmist says that, Bless the Lord, O my soul, who satisfies you or brings contentment to you with good so that your youth is renewed like eagles. I'm not sure there's anything that glorifies God more in the life of the believer than the believer who is content who is content, content with where God's sovereignty has placed him or her, content with what God's sovereignty has provided for him or her. Contentment is indeed a mark of godliness. And to be contented in Christ alone, the heart resting in Him, the mind at peace in Him, it will allow all the fool's gold to be seen for what it is. In this world, vanity, 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 it all is vanity. And like Asaph, we will get to the point when we count the blessings of the Lord and we meditate long on the doctrine of justification by faith and we see that He brings, He satisfies the longing soul. Like Asaph, we will cry out, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. That is the contented Christian. And that is what God has promised his people who are justified, that they will find contentment in Christ alone. Now, that isn't some idealistic truth. And I'm not dismissing the fact that you have warfare every day, inside and outside. But you can have warfare, and you can be battling against your spiritual foes and still be contented. Warfare does not remove contentment. And so we find that in, these, in this wonderful psalm, these first five verses, what the Lord has done for us because he's declared us righteous, met our greatest need, forgiveness, cured our greatest diseases, spiritual, saved us from sin's temporal and eternal consequences, death, exalts over us with love and mercy and brings contentment. Well, let's quickly move on. Verse six through, um, we're actually gonna pick it up in verse eight. Verse 8 through 14. I want to give you five ways the Lord treats us. We've seen what he's done for us. Now, how does he treat us? This is the treatment that you get as a believer. Every day. All day long. Whether you realize it or not, this is how God treats us. And and, and this is a shouting ground. This is amazing how he would treat us knowing how we treat him. And here we go. The first one. Verse 8, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. Exodus 34, 6, the Lord passed by him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The first way that the Lord always treats his justified children is with kindness and patience is with kindness and patience. If you and I were sitting over a cup of coffee and I ask you, give me two of the, of the greatest displays of God's love to us, how would you answer me? Your first one, you'd run to the cross, rightly so. The cross. The second one, what would you answer for the second, the greatest display of God's love to us? Before I would give you a chance to answer, I would give you mine. And this is what I would say. Is that the greatest display of God's love apart from the cross of his son. Is his daily patience with us. Is his patience with us. Look back and see how patient God has been with you. Now when we look at these these qualities or these truths of how God treats us. Here's the application for you and the application for me. As the Lord washed the disciples feet. And when he was done, and he put the towel down in the basin, and he went, and he sat down, he says, what I have done for you is an example. So when you look at these, and you marvel over how God treats you, ask him to help you to treat his children just like he treats you. Ask him to treat other Christians just like he treats you. What a glorious testimony the church would be to a watching world if we treated each other the exact way that the Lord Jesus treats us individually. And how does he treat us first and foremost? With kindness and patience. The Lord is merciful and gracious, long-suffering, as, the, as an older translation would say. And so with kindness and patience, go and do likewise. And how is this patience uh, manifested? Think about this for a minute. His willingness to receive us. His willingness to allow us to fellowship with Him. Knowing how often we're like sheep who drift into places we shouldn't go. And yet what does He do? In His patience, He brings us back. And He invites us to come and dine. He invites us to come and have breakfast. He invites us to come and meet Him once again each and every day. So how does the Lord treat us? Because we're justified with kindness and patience. Now look at verse 10. He also treats us with mercy. Not giving us what we deserve. He doesn't give us what we deserve. He does not deal with us according to our sins. Nor repay us according to our iniquities. It's been said by someone of another era. Our sins are many and his judgments are few. Our sins are many and his judgments are few. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. That is a staggering truth. Is that once, once he did that on Christ, he cannot and will not do it on you. He has poured out his entire wrath upon our sins and iniquities upon Christ. We're going to see that you know, in Romans more in chapter 5. We're going to see this this propitiation, imputation, truth come light. But I want you to think about the woman caught in adultery. And you're very familiar with John chapter 8. The woman is pulled out. She's exposed. The religious crowd there is ready to stone her. And you know the story. You know, as I've read that story, and I'm sure you've read it too, I always wondered, where's the guy? I always wonder, why isn't the guy out there too? It takes two to commit the sin that she committed. But nevertheless, she's out there. She's shamed. She's humiliated. And Jesus looks at them and says, he without uh, sin, throw the first stone. No one. They all drop and they all leave. She's still standing there. and She's standing before the Creator. She is still rattled with guilt. She's rattled with, with shame. She has a lot of regret, a lot of remorse. Can you imagine how she felt when it's just her and Jesus? I wonder if she thought, what's he going to do? What's he going to do? Is he going to expose me too? And Jesus looks at her and says, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. Then I wonder in the back of her mind, she's thinking, but maybe you are. Maybe you are. Now let's remember the law that she broke is his. The law that she violated, likely time and time and time again, it wasn't a moral code that he was divorced of. That was his law. It was his moral law that was broken. He had every right to look at her and says, You are condemned. And yet, she looks at him and said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. I believe she just started jumping up and down, just started skipping down the street because she has enjoyed a freedom she had not enjoyed before. She now was free. Her greatest need was met, forgiveness. Her great disease was healed. Her spiritual. And I wonder, from now on, sin no more. It's conjecture, but I think she turned her life around We'll know someday. We'll know someday. But the point I want you to understand is that God does not treat us what we deserve. And sometimes I think we treat people by what we think they deserve. And sometimes we even treat ourselves by what we think we deserve. All the while while we have forgotten that God has justified us. That God doesn't see us in our sins. God doesn't see us in our iniquities. He sees us in His Son. He delights over us. And with mercy, He does not give us what we deserve. One of the wonderful passages of Micah, Micah 7, 18 and 19, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of His inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. There's parts of the sea that are pretty deep. I was, um, I was, talking, to, um, um, I was talking to the grandkids. We had them. And they were talking about the ocean. And you know, how the ocean's blue and it's, uh, it's really pretty. I said, Do you know what the ocean's like in the middle of the Atlantic? You know, big eyes. What do you mean? I said, Do you know? I said, I've been across the Atlantic about eight times. And I said, Yeah, and I used to go out in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. I said, do you, know what, you know what it's like in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean? It is coal black. It's because of the depth. It's because of the depth. And I said, "There's parts of the uh, of, of the of the ocean depth." I said that man has not even gone down. I said, and God has said that He would cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. I think it was Corey Tinboom. She said uh, something to this effect: God cast our sins into the depths of the sea, and then He put up a sign that said, "No fishing allowed." So you're not allowed to bring them back. Why? Because if He doesn't deal with us according to our sins, why would we? That doesn't give you a pass. It actually inflames your heart for holiness. It inflames your heart for love. So how does God treat us? He treats us with tremendous kindness and patience. He treats us with mercy, not giving us what we deserve. Now look at verse 11. He treats us with steadfast love. He treats us with steadfast love. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. I am so glad that the word steadfast is before love. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love towards those who fear him. I'm so grateful, it says, his steadfast love. And you should be grateful that there's a little two-letter word in John 3, 16 that shows the intensity of God's love. Don't we lose the emphasis, don't we lose the power of John 3.16 if, if, if it only read, For God, God loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. If you would uh, do a study, uh, as I challenge you to study in Christ, in Jesus this morning, if you would do a study of steadfast love, Or like the NAS would uh, translate loving kindness. If you would do a study in the Psalms alone of steadfast love and loving kindness, you will find it appears 121 times in the ESV and 122 times in the NAS. It's a dominant theme in the Psalms. is the loving kindness and the steadfast love of God. In Psalm 136, there's there's 26 verses. Every verse ends with his steadfast love endures forever. His loving kindness endures forever. His mercy endures forever. And one of the great truths about his steadfast love, because it's never changing, because it's fixed upon the objects of his love, which is his justified children, is that because his steadfast love is that fixation on his children, it ensures his continual faithfulness to us. Jeremiah 31.3 says, The Lord appeared to him from afar. I have loved you with an everlasting, a steadfast love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Here's one of the great indescribable riches of heaven. We are going to forever drink of the bottomless well of God's love. Always satisfied and yet experiencing more. More and more and more. The bottomless well of God's love. We will never grow tired of it. We will never go discontented. We will be forever satisfied with His steadfast love. And that's how He treats us now. And admittedly, we don't, we don't drink of it to the depth that we can. Still in our fallenness. But there's a day coming when you're not going to have any hindrances. And you're going to be able to drink from this this everlasting living waters of his love. So what do we see then how God treats his children and how we are to treat one another? With kindness and patience. With mercy, not giving what we deserve and what we think others deserve. With steadfast love. Now look at verse 13. He deals with us with parental compassion. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Take time this week and ponder, ponder two things. Ponder that you can look outwardly and upwardly and that because you are justified by faith in Christ alone, you can call the Creator Father. You can call the Creator Father. When you have no other words to pray, you can call the Creator Father. When you're in the depths of sorrow and the depths of grief, you can say Father. That's one of the great, great riches and the blessings and how God treats us. He always treats us as children. So ponder the fact that you can call the Creator Father and then ponder this this truth this week. Just one word, adopted. Adopted. It's, It's a dominant theme by the Apostle Paul. Is that when you are adopted by God into His forever family, you're never unadopted, if that's even a word you're never thrown out of the family. You're never disowned. First John 3, 1-3, we read, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are now. The reason why the world does not know us, and did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And and notice what John says. We own that adoption now. And I admit in my own life, and I'm sure in your lives too, I don't always measure up to being his kid. I don't always act like his kid. That doesn't change the adoption. I'm still his kid regardless i will always be his kid and you will always be his kid if you've been justified by faith remember the prodigal uh the, the parable of the prodigal son it really isn't about the prodigal son you know it's about it's a, well it's, it's the son it's the brother but it's also about the father it's a picture of god the father the prodigal father matthew henry he said this of the father And this shows us how our God sees us as his children and treats us as a father with fatherly compassion. Henry said this, quote, his father saw him. There were eyes of mercy. He ran to meet him. There were legs of mercy. He kissed him. There were kisses of mercy. He said to him, there were words of mercy. Bring here the best robe. There were deeds of mercy, wonders of mercy, all mercy. Oh, what a God of mercy he is, end quote. And that God of mercy is the one who allows you to call, himself, call him father. And he looks at you and says, my beloved child. And then finally, look at verse 14 and we close. Here's a fifth way that God deals with us. Or I should say how he treats us. With awareness of how weak we truly are. I am so glad for this. Verse 14, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are but dust. All we are is a bunch of dirt. We were made from the dust. Genesis 2, 7, the Lord formed the man of dust from the ground. Psalm 78, 39, he remembered that we were but flesh. We are but dust. So if we ever want to start boasting of ourselves, just remember, we're just a, bunch of, we're just a pile of dirt. We have no reason to boast over anything. And yet God sees us in our weaknesses. And what does he do? He treats us with what? Kindness and patience. He treats us with mercy, not giving us what we deserve. He treats us with steadfast love, with parental compassion, all along knowing that we are sheep who fumble and bumble our way all the way to heaven. So may Psalm 103 encourage you tonight. May you think more and more of how God treats you what he's done for you in regards to the doctrine of justification by faith and then may we go and treat each other likewise just like the Lord Jesus treats us and may the world take notice that we have been with him and that we love one another and they in turn may find the glorious freedom of the doctrine of justification by faith let's pray Father thank you so much for loving us and thank you for the way you do treat us thank you for the beauty of the psalmist May we take long uh, times of meditating upon these truths. May we learn to drink long and, wo- and deep at the well of salvation, at the living waters of your steadfast love, and that we would find satisfaction, we would find contentment. I thank you for the faithfulness of your people. I thank you that we could be together tonight. We thank you that you've given us your word, your trustworthy word. May we walk our union with Christ this week. We walk as justified people, marveling over such a great God that you are. In Jesus' name, amen.